one of the nights that, uh, or evenings I should say, that very much sticks out of my mind is the evening that Helen and I got engaged. I uh, decided I wanted to get engaged at a place that we could return to if we chose to in the years to come, a place that wouldn't change a whole lot. And at the time, I was pastoring in Northern Virginia and uh, decided that we would uh, take a trip and uh, fly to Fort Worth, Texas, and I would propose to her on the campus of Southwestern Baptist Seminary where I'd gone to seminary. And we stayed with some friends there in Fort Worth, and the idea was that I was going to probably try to get engaged to her earlier in the week so we could sort of celebrate through the week. Well, you name it, and it went wrong that week. Um, we got there, and there were just all kinds of complications. The pastor of the church where uh, I had served while I was in seminary passed away about two days after we got there, and uh, so we had the funeral and all of that that happened, and then the rental car we had, a portion of the engine decided to burn up on us, and it was just a very exciting uh, week with all kinds of uh, issues that had not been anticipated. So Friday night rolled around, and we were leaving on Saturday. So it's like, if I'm going to do this, it's got to happen on Friday night. So we, I took her out for dinner. Now, I have this bad habit of when I am involved in a very uh, major uh, event, I get very nervous, which means that food does not mix well with my system. And so we go out for this nice meal, which we have, and by the time we got to the seminary campus, the food was not... Uh, mixing well with my system, and so I had to dismiss myself uh, to the bathroom facilities for a while, and then I came on out and uh, began to take her on a tour of the seminary campus. Now, Southwestern has a really nice library which features a very, very uh, nice rose garden, and so I thought, man, that's the ideal place for me to propose to her is in the rose garden. So I walked her around the campus, and we approached the library, and I was everything all set up as to where I was going to go in that rose garden. What I did not count on in the rose garden was the sprinkler system coming on. <laughs> so about the time I got to the rose garden, it's waterworks all over the place. So I did that dash that idea. So we walked on past the rose garden, and kept on down past the School of Music, and at this time we had been walking for a while, and we'd gone through this whole week, and nothing had happened, and Helen says to me in frustration, I don't know where I stand with you, and you know, this relationship is nice, but I'm getting tired of being introduced as your friend all the time, and uh, I'm just very frustrated about where we are. And I'm thinking in the back of my mind, if the stupid water hadn't started flying in a rose garden, you'd know where we were in this. And so then I realized that the proposal was going to have to happen really quickly in order to you know, meet the frustration level that she was expressing to me. So I decided we'd go over to the School of Education, which I knew was just going to be really plain and boring over there and so forth, and no waterworks, et cetera, and I saw a bench over there. So that wasn't my main idea, but I thought this is where we're going for it. So... Went over there, and, you know, and again, she just frustrated everything. So I said, let's sit down here on this bench. And so she sat down on the bench, and I looked at her, and I said, I want to ask you if you would marry me and be my wife. And just like that, everything changed. Now, she's not in here this morning because she's with the children's ministry, so I'll, I'll say this, but she looked at me, and she said, oh, she's just so excited. She says, I'll be the best wife you've ever had. And I, I didn't know quite how to respond to that. <laughs> 
And no pastor search committee, I did not hide something from you all. <laughs> so uh, we got engaged. But you know, in the moment that I asked her, the whole atmosphere changed. And the reason for that is that the relationship took on new definition. We weren't just boyfriend and girlfriend anymore. We were fiancé, engaged to be married. The relationship took on a new level of definition. It took on contours. It also took on some new titles. And most of all, it took on security. Now, in our relationship with the Lord, often one of the things that we struggle with a lot is definition. Exactly what kind of relationship do we have with Him? And security is huge. I remember in the early year, first years or two of my Christian life, I struggled so much with the security of my relationship with Jesus. In fact, I had days that I trusted Him as my Savior multiple times over because I was so concerned that the relationship wasn't secure. In the Scriptures, going back to the Old Testament, God wanted to clearly define the relationship that He had with His people. He also wanted to provide a level of security in that relationship. So God introduced to His people a concept called covenant. And the entire Old Testament is basically based on the covenants that God made with His people. Those covenants gave direction to the relationship, contours to the relationship, and above all else, it provided a level of security in the relationship. This is what God is committing Himself to. This is how God defines this relationship. And that's why when you move over to the New Testament, Jesus says to the disciples the night before He's going to be crucified, I want to bring you into a new covenant. He's continuing the covenant concept, and He says this is a new covenant that I am beginning. You turn with me in your Bibles this morning to 1 Chronicles chapter 16. 1 Chronicles chapter 16. As you turn there, allow me to give you the context of this story. The Ark of the Covenant, which represented in the Old Testament the very presence of God, has been brought to the city of Jerusalem. It is a time of tremendous celebration. And King David has erected a tent for the Ark to be placed in. Now, all of the top musicians and Musicians in Israel are there, and they're celebrating this art coming in. And what we have recorded in 1 Chronicles chapter 16 is the song of David that he sings and he offers in celebration of the Ark of the Covenant coming into Jerusalem. Now, in this song of celebration, which is an extensive quote from the 105th Psalm, David talks about how God has treated Israel through the years. And in specifically, he mentions the covenant that he had with Abraham, referred to as the Abrahamic covenant. God made a covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 18. And essentially what God said to Abraham is, I'm going to give you a posterity, a legacy, and I'm going to give you a land in which to dwell. He then confirms that and renews that covenant with Abraham's son Isaac in Genesis chapter 26 and then confirms it again to, his grand, to Abraham's grandson, Isaac's son, named Jacob. So for three generations, the Abrahamic covenant is renewed and God recommits Himself to it. First Chronicles chapter 16, we're going to begin with verse 14. 
And these are the words that David is saying as he celebrates the ark of God being brought into the city of Jerusalem. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. Remember His covenant forever. The word that He commanded for a thousand generations. The covenant that He made with Abraham. His sworn promise to Isaac, which He confirmed to Jacob as a statute. To Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, To you I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. When you were few a number of little account and sojourners in it, wandering from nation to nation and from one kingdom to another kingdom. Now, if you'll notice verses 17 and 18, speaking of this covenant, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute to Israel, that is Jacob, who was renamed Israel, as an everlasting covenant. And what was that covenant? To you I will give the land of Canaan, which corresponds to modern-day Israel, as your portion for an inheritance. Now, let's look first of all at the concept of covenant in Scripture. First of all, the covenant was the basis of how God related to His people. Again, it gave the contours of the relationship and it gave security to the relationship. Notice verse 14. He says, This covenant was on behalf of the Lord our God. That is the personal name for God, Lord, Yahweh, and then the term that's translated God there, Elohim. Yahweh Elohim. And the idea is Yahweh is the God of the covenant. That is the covenant name of God. The name that God gave to say, I am pledging myself to you. Now, no promise means much of anything if the promiser does not have the ability and the strength to carry through on the promise. And so Elohim is the idea of the strong, majestic, and powerful one. In other words, God has the ability and the commitment and the empowerment to follow through on His promise. So He's saying that everything that God promised us in the covenant, He has the power and the ability to carry through and to make it happen. In the Old Testament, the covenants are the history of how God deals with the people and He bounds Himself to folks. Now, in those days when you made a covenant with someone... You made a covenant by either an oath you took verbally and or an action that you took. And animal sacrifices accompanied the solidifying of a covenant. So when you made a covenant with someone, the sacrifice said this is a serious covenant and the sacrifice indicates how serious and committed the person making the covenant is about this. Now... In the covenant, God is the strong one and man is the weak one. And in this covenant, Abraham's part is simply this. He's to leave the land that he's grown up in and move to a new land that God is going to show him. Up to this point, Abraham migrated all over the place. He was just sort of going from one place in the desert to another place to another place. And get the picture of what Abraham is facing here. Abraham grew up in a place called Ur of the Chaldees. Now, Ur was not some little, you know, backwater place where everybody was just sort of running around chasing sheep. It was actually one of the most developed cities of the ancient world at that time. Archaeologists have discovered it had a very well-developed commercial system as well as a library, which made it very unique for that day and age. And so he's sitting here in this town, or this city, I should say, one of the largest, best-developed cities in the ancient world, and trot down to the library if he wants to get some, do some reading, talk with folks. 
commerce is easy. He's got the Palestinian Walmart just down the road. You name it. And he's hanging out, and God comes to him, and he says, Abraham, I want you to just get up and leave all of this. And I want you to go out here to where I'm going to show you, and all you've got on the horizon out here is desert, which means you've got to trust me big time to leave all of the culture and the commerce and the security of it and go in a direction with your life that you don't have a clue. You are trusting me for every step you take. But Abraham, I want you to understand something. I'm going to strike a covenant with you. I'm going to pledge myself to you. I'm going to get you there. And though you don't see where I'm taking you, I'm going to take you to a specific land. But you're going to have to trust me with every step that you are taking. And what David is doing here in the 15th, excuse me, the 16th chapter of 1 Chronicles is he's looking back on how God fulfilled his covenant to Abraham and he's saying, you know something? God kept his word. God took Abraham from Ur of the Chaldees, from civilized society, out into seemingly nothing, and he got him to this land where we are right now. Now, folks, the application for you and for me, we're going to see this more extensively in a few moments. But listen, God is going to speak to you sometime in your life, if not multiple times in your life, and he's going to say, it's time to move with me. And we're going to be at a place in life where we are secure. And we pretty much got it all nailed down. And God's going to say, I want to take you somewhere with me, but I'm not going to give you the contours of where you're going. I'm not going to show you the exact nature of everything. You're going to have to trust me for every step that you take. You're going to have to trust me that I'm going to provide for you, I'm going to take care of you, and the land to which I take you to, you're going to be okay. Not because you can see how everything is going to pan out, but because you know that I'm in charge and I'm going to get you there. You're going to have to not just live on my promises, you're going to have to live in my promises and live through my promises. And that's what his challenge was to Abraham here. That was the idea of the covenant. And David is thanking God for being the promise keeper here. Now notice what the nature of this covenant was. He says to him, I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to take you to a land. When you read through the Old Testament, land is a big deal. 400 references to land from Genesis to Deuteronomy. The patriarchs, Abraham, Moses, you name them, all talked about the land. Couldn't wait to get the land. We're seemingly obsessed with the land. I grew up in the city of Richmond, and land was no big deal. You bought a house, you lived in the house. When you lived out of the house, you sold the house, you moved on, but you didn't think much about the land. But I got relatives, as I've told you before, lived down in Gretna, and the family farm is now in its third generation of being in the family. My uncle got it from his father, and now they've passed it on to their children. That land with the family is sacred land. When it looked like my aunt was in the nursing home and she was going to pass away, one of the big questions was, who's going to get the land and is that farm going to stay within the family? And we were all very concerned that the land stayed within the family. Some of you all know what I'm talking about. And why was that? Because that land has always been tied with the family. We just couldn't imagine anybody else owning 
that land. It has to stay in the family. And that's sort of the idea that you've got here when God says, I'm going to give you a land. Now, the land in the Old Testament, when you got to your land, it meant you were settled and you were at rest. You were settled and you were at rest. Because otherwise, the nation of Israel was just wandering from one place to another place. It also spoke of your identity. It talks about the land of Egypt. That's where the Egyptians lived. That's where the Egyptians controlled everything. That was their land, the land of Israel, where the Israelites lived. They controlled it, etc. So that's the idea of the covenant. I'm going to give you a land. You're going to have security. You're going to settle in it. It's going to be yours. And finally, you are going to be at rest. Now let's take that and move it into where you and I live. Keep your finger in 1 Chronicles and turn over to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to begin with verse 8. Where the writer of Hebrews is going to start talking about Abraham and take it to us. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, as that land. And he went out not knowing where He was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac, who was his son, and Jacob, his grandson, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. Now let me back up to verse 10. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Now in that 10th verse, there's a huge transition that the writer makes with Abraham. He says, God came to Abraham and said, Abraham, I got a land for you. I got an inheritance for you. You're going to have your place. So I want you to pack up your family, leave everything you know, and let's head to that place. They moved out of their house. He's got his son, the grandson. They move out of the house. They start out in the desert. And they pitch a tent. Now, can you imagine going from living in a house to living in a tent? That's not a whole lot of fun. And what do you do when your grandson and your son look at you and say, Daddy, Papa, why do we go from that nice house in that nice city to out here in this desert to being in a tent? Why am I living in a tent right now? Why aren't we living back in the house? And I don't understand this God that we're following because he took us from a nice house to living in a tent going somewhere where we don't even know where we're going. 
And Abraham looked at him and he basically said to him, I'm looking for a city, but I'm not just looking son and grandson for any city. I'm looking for the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. The city that we're headed towards that I'm looking at by faith is not a city that's built by man. It's a city built by God. Let's move on verse 11. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man in him as good as dead were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. They knew they could trust God because of the miracle that he had already performed in their life. Verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and have acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, please listen closely to this, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. A Hebrew writer of Hebrews here is saying this. Abraham left Ur of the Chaldees, pitches a tent, moves his family into a tent. Where are we going, Dad? Where are we going, Pop? I can imagine the conversation went something like this. Son, family, we're living by faith now. We're living on the promises of God. Don't get in your mind we're going to another city like Ur because we're not. God's been growing something inside of me. A desire. A desire for a new city. A desire for a different kind of city. A desire for a city whose builder, whose architect is not human beings, but it's God. A heavenly city. And we're not going to see that city this side, but we are going to see it on the other side. Now when Jesus came and Jesus established what he called the new covenant, what is the land of the new covenant? The old covenant had a land that they were moving to, the land of Canaan, but Abraham looks past even that place and sees this new city. So what is this new covenant about? The land of the new covenant is that city that God has and is preparing. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 21, verses 9 through 14. Revelation chapter 21 beginning with verse 9. Speaking of the new Jerusalem, this new city, this new city that Abraham is looking forward to, then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. That's the church. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. 
having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. He had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of that city had, notice he said he wanted that city that had foundations. The city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Now skip down with me to verse 19. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carlinine, the seventh crystallite, the eighth burial, the ninth topaz, the tenth crystal phase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. Abraham saw that city by faith afar off. And that's what he was headed to. Because that was the ultimate promise of God for the land. But notice back in Hebrews, it says they recognized that they were strangers and exiles on this earth. And they were looking forward to that heavenly city. But folks, the new covenant that Jesus has promised us is simply this, that when we choose to follow Him and love Him and serve Him, He says to us, I want you to understand something. This earth, this world is not your home. Don't you get all caught up in this earth, in this world, and the things of this world. Because it's not your home. You see, we get in trouble when we get so attached to now, and to this world, and to this earth. When we think that the material things around us are going to last forever, and they are not, they are temporary. We get in trouble when we think we belong to this time, and to this earth, and to this world. Because we don't. Abraham recognized he didn't belong to that tent. He didn't belong to that desert. That was not the final destiny of his life. Heaven was. I can imagine the day that he looked at Isaac, and he looked over at Jacob, and he said, let me tell you what God has shown me. There's something a whole lot better coming in fact, it even puts Ur that you grew up in to shame because this city God has made. That's the promise of His covenant that He makes with us. You see, we get in trouble when we start living and acting and thinking like we belong to this world. When we start acting and thinking like we are resident of this world instead of we're just a stranger and a pilgrim. A stranger knows that I don't belong to this situation. This isn't permanent, this situation. So I don't have to act like it and think like it and take on its values. I'm just passing through this to something different and to something better. And when you and I begin to live out of the Word of God and we begin to live in the covenant promise of heaven, we look around us and we say, yeah, there's problems here and mess and all that, but I don't belong to 
to this. I'm not going to take on his morals. I'm not going to act like it, talk like it, conform like it, and become like it because God's got something different and he's got something better coming. And that's what I'm living for and I'm looking for. You see, I don't belong to heaven until I die. I belong to heaven right now. My home is not there when I die someday. My home is already there. I'm not worried about where I'm getting there because Jesus says I already got your name down, son, and it's already prepared for you. You're already a citizen of heaven because I've already set it up for you. Well, folks, think about this. When we get to that place, which we all do, when we have to lay someone in the cemetery and say goodbye that we've loved and cherished, and our hearts are broken. But my gracious, if they know Jesus, and they're a follower of His, yes, we have sorrow that is but for a season. But we also stand there and we say, they are now at home. They're at their eternal home. They're at a home that is so much better than anything they knew here. They're at a home whose city, the builder, the architect, is God Almighty. Oh, look at the description. <laughs> when you look at the foundation of most places, you don't take jewels and put them in the foundation. You put them out on the front so everybody can see them. You see, when God goes to build, He takes the jewels, which we see as the greatest thing, and He puts them at the base because everything else He's building is superior to that. I didn't have time to, to read it this morning, but one of the things it says about heaven is there's not going to be any churches there. The reason there's not going to be any church buildings there is the presence of God permeates the place so much all over the place all the time. You just worship all over the place. You're engulfed in the presence of God 24-7. There's no sun there. They don't need sun. When you got the S-O-N, you don't need the S-U-N anymore because the S-O-N illuminates everything. That is His new covenant that He has for us. How does it change us? It changes us because we realize that the best is yet to come. It changes us because we realize that we don't belong to this world. We belong to the one that He's got coming. It changes us because it gives us hope that when we do walk away from a gravesite of a believer, we know that there's a day coming we will be reunited in His presence with them in that eternal city forever. It means we don't live for today, we live for that day when we will be in His presence. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, that I've told you about before, was part of the resistance to Nazi Germany, Second World War. Dietrich ran a private underground seminary for German resistant pastors, and the Nazis found out about it. And they came in and they busted it up. They threw him in jail where he was under the watchful eye of the Gestapo 24-7. And day after day, sitting in that jail cell, he got old. He got real old. Seeing no one. The only thing he could see was through his jail cell window, a tree out in the front yard. And at a point of despair and struggle, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote these words, Who am I? Who am I? They mock me, these lonely questions of mine. 
whoever I am, you know, O God, I am yours. Whoever I am, I know, O God, I am yours. You see, in that jail cell, when the Nazis attempted to strip him of his very identity, He said, I know who I am, Lord. I am yours. That's the essence of the covenant. I am yours. Folks, no matter what comes across us in life, no matter what we face, no matter if you feel like you lose your house and you end up in a tent, even in the tent in the desert, we can say, Jesus, I am yours. I belong to you. I don't belong to the past. I don't belong to the abuser. I don't belong to my mistakes. I don't belong to this world. Jesus, I belong to you. I am yours. Let's pray.